All right, if you have your Bibles, let's go back into the book of Genesis in chapter 5, right where we left off. Thus far, we've watched the creation of the heavens and the earth. We've seen God create man and woman, and of course, the fall of man, as we saw in chapter 3, and the entrance of sin into humanity, and then, of course, the very obvious byproducts of that beginning to deteriorate. Uh, people talk about the evolution of man. Well, Genesis chapter 4 was the de-evolution of man and the pretty obvious the down spiral that began to take place already with the problems in uh, the household of Adam and Eve between Cain and Abel so forth. The first murder we see in the Bible and just uh, problems in the home and just the deterioration of the marriage relationship already and the complications and of course, we're told at the end of chapter 4 there that uh, God then restored and, and sort of brought a replacement uh, for uh, Abel who was murdered. We're told at the end of chapter 4 that Adam again knew his wife and she bore a son named Seth. And Eve then saying, for God has appointed another seed for me instead of Abel uh, whom Cain killed. And of course, that recognition, her believing in faith that this was God's replacement uh, for the plan of God to be able to be that promised seed to ultimately bring the Messiah uh, into the world, the Savior that it seems God had promised to them. And as we come into chapter 5 now, if you read ahead, you notice that we're basically going to begin now to follow this line of Seth, uh, this uh, replacement that God gave to Adam and Eve once uh, Abel was murdered. It tells us there in chapter 5, verse 1, that this is the book of the genealogy of Adam in the day that God created man. He made him in the likeness of God, and he created them, again, notice the purposeful distinctions, God created them male and female, and he blessed them and called them mankind in the day that they were created. So verses 1 and 2 basically are just a a recap, a, a once again, in a synopsis, what God has done really in chapters 1 and 2, as we saw there in the book of Genesis. And now chapter 5, verse 3, begins this genealogy which will follow from Adam and will seek to help us trace our way from Adam to Noah. Uh, after that point later on we'll see another genealogy that then wants to take us from Noah to Abraham and then of course from Abraham to David and then of course from David all the way to Jesus Christ. And important to understand as we go into these genealogies, a lot of times they're not the most fun and pleasurable reading. A lot of times we come upon these genealogies in the Bible which basically are lists of name this guy you know, begat this guy who begat this guy and the son of and the son of and the son of. And we think, oh my goodness, these lengthy lists of names. And, you know, certainly they communicate to us a couple things just in surface value. First of all, again, remembering that all of Scripture is inspired of God. The Bible tells us that all Scripture is God-breathed and profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness, that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So we need to remember that even as we come to the sections of Scripture where we think, wow, all, really all? I mean, what, what, what possibly could be profitable in a section of Scripture like this? Well, we take God's word at face value, that it's all inspired and it's all profitable. And keep in mind, uh, as I've said before, there's a whole lot that an infinite God who knows all things could convey and could say and could share with us. And God, by his choice and will, 
has determined to give us certain chapters which are just kind of these lists of details of family names and lineages uh, in the place of, I don't know about you, but uh, I'm one of the, I, I say, well, maybe a few more chapters about marriage would have been a little more helpful or maybe a couple extra chapters or some more details about like child raising or, I mean, there are lots of different things that I could suggest, but again, God is sovereign and God knows what is essential and there are profitable things. Uh, of course, one of the things that we come to realize when we look at genealogies and lists like this, it's very evident that God is a God of detail. And that God does care about every little detail. That God knows every person individually. We look at these names and we think, who, I, who in the world cares? Enosh and Lamech and Canaan. And I, I don't know. I don't These people mean nothing to me. But to God, they meant everything. Because every single life means something to God. And whether that life is nine days or 930 years, like some of the people in this list, that life means something to God. It's valuable, and God knows every individual. Psalm 139 says all of our days are written in his book before one of them ever comes to be. And some of our books are longer than others, but God knows every life, and God knows your name. And God knows your whereabouts, and God knows what family you were born into, and God knows the intimate details of your life. He cares, and he keeps track of it. It may seem like that no one else cares. At times, I think people feel like, well, nobody else knows my name, and nobody else could really care whether I live or die or what goes on in my life. Well, God does. God does. God knows your name, and he knows your story. All these are just names to us, but they're a life to God and they're a story to God and they have purpose and intention and God cares very much about them, that God even here in his word records them because they mean and they matter something to God. And I think we need to realize that in regards to understanding what's really the heart of God. What does God care about, people? Genesis chapter 5 shows you something God cares about is people. God may not necessarily care as much about things like possessions and properties and the things that we a lot of times say, hey, that's the really important stuff. No, God cares about people. He cares about people more than possessions and property and physical things. He cares about individual lives. And God's a good record keeper. These genealogies show us that, that God keeps good records, that he's a God of detail, a God of organization, and he's a God of order. And these genealogies, when we come to them, we need to remember were essential because they trace the lineage and the line of the seed of Jesus Christ as the promised Messiah. And especially to the Jews, as well as just from God's perspective, when God makes covenant promises and says, the Messiah, the Savior of the world, will come through this family line, God records these things in his word to validate that he kept his word. That through that promised tribe, through that nation of Israel, and then through the tribe of Judah, and then through the family line of David, that God kept all those things, and you can trace the lineage. And when we read these genealogies, remember, they don't give to us every name of every family. They're not all listed here, because the only thing that the Word of God is concerned about is following the line of Jesus Christ. Because the Bible is a book about Jesus. The Bible tells us, lo, in the volume of the book it is written of me. So when we have these genealogies, understand we got a couple names of Cain's family last week, but very quickly that, that genealogy and family line dropped off because we don't want to follow the line of Cain. 
We want to follow the line of Seth because Seth is the line that ultimately brings us to Jesus. And that's what God's interested in. So when he gives us these lists, we're not necessarily getting every person, every name, every detail, but we're getting the details that we need to trace Jesus because everything in the Word of God is always trying to point to Jesus. Point to Jesus. Everything we have is always singing to bring us to that direction here. So verse 3 tells us Adam lived 130 years and begot a son... It says, in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. Now, very interesting. Adam, it says, begot a son. Notice verse 3, in his own likeness. How did it say Adam and Eve were created? They were created in the image and the likeness of God. But now sin has entered into humanity. Romans 5 says, sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and thus death has spread to all men. So now, as human beings are conceived and are naturally given birth to, the first two individuals are created, as they're now being conceived through a man and a woman and, and given birth in a natural sense, people are now being born the way David realizes that he was. Psalm 51, David says, Surely in sin my mother conceived me. Notice, now people are, are born in the likeness of man, meaning that they're born spiritually dead. Because at this point, Adam has lost his fellowship with God. Remember, the lights went out when he sinned. He began to hide from God, and he lost the spiritual fellowship he had with God. So when we give birth to children, in a sense, we're giving birth to children in our likeness, which means that they're born sinners. They're born spiritually dead. They're born depraved, which means at some point in their life, they have to have a spiritual birth of their own in order to have fellowship and relationship with God. And Seth, like all of those who were born of natural descent, are now born, notice, in Adam's likeness after his image. He named the son Seth, and after he begot Seth, the days of Adam, it says, were 830 years. So again, as we talked about in our prior lessons, we still have the longevity of life. This is prior to the flood when that water canopy still exists and the ultraviolet rays and the things that would cause cell breakdown and so forth uh, would, would still be in existence, which would allow for life to be extended in the way that it was. So we still have that longevity. Adam, it says, living 830 years, had sons and daughters. And so all the days of Adam that he lived were 930 years and he died. And Seth lived 105 years, and he begot Enosh. And after he begot Enosh, Seth lived 807 years and had sons and daughters. Again, doesn't tell us all of the names, gives us one. One name, though he had many sons and daughters, just one name, Enosh. And then all the days of Seth were 912 years, and he died. And Enosh lived 90 years and begot Canaan. And after he begot Canaan, Enosh lived 815 years. He also had sons and daughters. So all the days of Enosh were 905 years and he died. And Canaan lived 70 years, begot Mahalil. And Mahalil, Canaan lived 840 years and had sons and daughters. And all the days of Canaan were 910 years and he died. Now take notice, there's something very repetitious going on here. As you begin in verse 5, and then again in verse 8, and then again in verse 11, and then again in verse 14, you have someone lived X many years and they died. Notice, God's promise is coming true now. God told Adam, in the day that you eat of this, you shall surely what? Die. 
The devil came on the scene. He challenged God's word. He sought to make him question the word of God. And the devil said, you won't surely die. So the devil always does. He questions the word of God. The word of God won't really come true. You can't, you can't really take that at face value. And now you see the lie of the devil is being exposed and the truth and the promise of the word of God is what is standing and death has entered the picture and even though there is longevity and men are still living quite some time, that will be drastically decreased after the flood. We know that. But the reality is not only has spiritual death happened, but now physical death has entered into humanity. And no matter how long they lived, the Bible says it's appointed for man to die once and face judgment and death has entered in now. The one thing that's happening in each one of these things, no matter how long they lived, no matter how many sons and daughters they had, every one died. And you see this being emphasized now. Men are dying. Men are dying. And verse 15 says, In Mahalil, he lived 65 years. He begot Jared. And after he begot Jared, Mahalil lived 830 years. And he as well had sons and daughters. And all the days of Mahalil were 895 years, and he died. And Jared lived 160 years, and he begot Enoch. And we'll see something interesting about him in a few verses. And after he begot Enoch, Jared lived 800 years and had sons and daughters. So all the days of Jared were 962 years, and he died. Now, let, let me just say this. There are some very interesting commentators who go through and take the names of the list in this genealogy. You know, Seth and Enosh and Canaan uh, and, and Mahalil. And they go forth and they show the different meanings of the Hebrew names and, and how spelled out and communicated in this genealogy of these names in the Hebrew. There's basically a testimony to God's plan of redemption and the gospel presented. Do I have any intention on doing that tonight? No, and I'll tell you why. Is it there and is it fascinating? Yes, it is. And God's word is a marvel. It's wonderful. And I praise God for Hebrew scholars and men like Chuck Misslers who are brilliant and who see this stuff and, and find it. But my, my apprehension in drawing attention to things like that, even though I already did now, so I guess I'm kind of defeating my purpose. My, my apprehension in doing that is this is I have enough trouble reading the Bible at face value and obeying it myself. I don't want to spend my time nor encourage other people predominantly to spend their time looking for all kinds of little hidden codes in the Hebrew and between the letters and behind the blanks because when you start to do that, basically you make the scripture in many ways, I think nothing more than just an academic exercise. And then you're always, well, 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 what if we spelt that Hebrew sentence backwards? Maybe it'll say something about Saddam Hussein in there or something. And, and people go searching around the scriptures looking for all kinds of things which are deeply intellectual. And, and they're in there, trust me. I can tell you that they are. I, it's amazing the things that are weaved. I don't think we even scratch the surface with what we have in the word of God. But, but if you like those kind of things, I would just caution you to, to make your first priority to just let the word of God say what it means and mean what it says and take what's on the surface value and let that speak to you and challenge you and try and obey that rather than always hunting around. And because I think if you're not careful, you can really begin to get off on some rabbit trails with that kind of stuff. 
And are those things there? Yes, they're wonderful, but personally, I don't typically like to draw them out for that, that very reason. Look at verse 21. Let's talk about Enoch here, this very interesting count uh, individual we have, this character. It says, verse 21, that Enoch, he lived, notice, 65 years, and he begot Methuselah. And after he begot Methuselah, Enoch walked with God for 300 years. Years. How cool is that? I love to know somebody. That, how long are you walking with God? 300 years. 300 years this guy had a relationship with God. And he had sons and daughters. And all the days of Enoch were 365 years. And verse 24, this interesting statement. And Enoch walked with God, and then he was not, for God took him. So, we have this really interesting insertion here. Again, we're just getting lists of names and how long they lived and the name of their son that's the primary individual to help follow the lineage. Now we're actually told something here in this list of names and we're thinking these are all just seemingly insignificant individuals. They mean nothing to me and, and who are they? But again, it shows you how God knows each name because God, it's almost as if God says, let me just, let me just give you one example how I know what's going on in every individual's life. Even in the midst of all this insignificant group of people who basically fly under the radar, nobody ever knows them, and you're thinking, well, that's me. You know, nobody knows me. I, you know, like anybody knows what goes on in my life. Well, God knows you. And he knows exactly what's going on in your life. And he knows whether you're walking with God or you're not walking with God. And he values and he appreciates that because it tells us as Enoch here that Enoch walked with God for 300 years. Interesting, it says that he walked with God, it says verse 22, after he begot Methuselah. So, again, did he have children prior to the time when he turned 65 years old and had Methuselah? Verse 21 says he lived 65 years and then he begot Methuselah. And after he begot Methuselah at age 65, it says Enoch walked with God. It seems to me that it was at the birth of Methuselah that he then, after 65 years, started walking with God. And I can't help but think that that is a very likely possibility because I'll tell you, having children does have a way, does it not, to just kind of jolt your world a little bit. You know what I mean? I mean, I, 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 I was walking with the Lord before I got saved, but I'll tell you, if I wasn't, when I had my first child... I could see myself at that point saying, man, I really need God's help in my life <laughs> because this is, this, is, this is challenging and this is difficult. And it's amazing how just there's something that awakens in us and God uses the birth of a child in our life to cause us to really think through some things and have some reality checks in ways maybe that we didn't before. So somehow connected to the time of the birth of Methuselah, this was when Enoch began his walk and his relationship with God. And God used that in a pivotal way in his life to help him spiritually. And, and what a wonderful thing that God uses anything and everything to get us to walk with God. That any, and, and God here used the birth of this child to do something spiritual and eternally significant in the life of Enoch because it was at that point Enoch starts to walk with God and he walked with God for 300 years. And I like that description of relationship. Walking with God implies fellowship. 
you have to be in fellowship and an agreement and a right relationship with God to walk with him because if Paul and I disagree about the way that we're supposed to get from here uh, over to the school that we meet on for Sunday mornings, guess what? We're not going to walk together if we have a disagreement about the way to get there. We have to have the same idea. In this. Okay, now if we're in agreement, how can two walk together, the Bible says, unless they be agreed? And it shows you that his life was in a relationship with God because he walked in fellowship with God. What a great description to describe spiritual relationship, walking with God. I, I love those terms because that's what God wants. Walking implies forward progression. God doesn't call us to just stand. God calls us to walk with him, to make forward progression. Walking implies you're going somewhere. You're making progress. You're, you're moving forward. It implies you know, intimacy and a sharing together on the same journey, having a, a close connection with one another. And for 300 years, man, I'm impressed when I meet somebody. How long have I been walking with, with the Lord for 30 years or 40 years? Wow, that's, that's incredible. 300 years. And can I bring to your attention, as we look at Genesis chapter 6, as we will in a few minutes, the conditions morally at this time on the earth were dreadful. The earth, the Bible tells us in Genesis chapter 6, uh, that the earth at that time was every intent of the thoughts of man's heart was evil continually. The earth was wicked. The, wor the world was ungodly and violent and dark and evil. And guess what? In the midst of that, Enoch walked with God for 300 years. And may I bring to our attention, Enoch walked with God in a dark, evil, ungodly world without a copy of the Scriptures, without the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit of God, as you and I have now on this side of the cross, through the redemptive work of Jesus Christ, where the Spirit lives in us, and He helps us, and aids us, and empowers us, without the indwelling of the Spirit, without the Word of God, you know, without Christian literature, and bookstores, and concerts, and... With, he still walked with God. And I don't know about you, but that convicts me because sometimes I give pretty cheap excuses for why I may not walk with God in certain areas of my life. And many, well, you, listen, if you want to walk with God, you can walk with God. And if you don't want to walk with God, you ain't going to walk with God. <laughs> but you can't blame it on the environment. This guy's environment was way worse than any one of our environments probably is. And he walked with God. And he didn't have half available to him that we have to us. The indwelling of the Spirit. The, 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 the power of that available to us. The Word of God is a lamp for our feet and a light for our feet. This is just an astonishing thing when you really wrap your mind around it. Yet he faithfully walked with God. What a great exhortation for our hearts. This man had a love for God. He walked with God faithfully. And then it tells us in verse 24 that he walked with God. And then it just says, and he was not for God took him. That is, as he walked with God one day, God just removed him from the planet. God just removed him from the face of the earth and drew him away. In many ways, it's a, a beautiful illustration of how prior to what was God about to do in Genesis chapter 6, God was going to bring judgment on the earth. But before God brought judgment on the earth, there was someone who had relationship with him and who was walking with God. And the individual who was walking with God and had a relationship with God, it says that God took him before God unleashed his judgment upon the earth for its wickedness and ungodliness. 
And what a beautiful picture in the same way that the Bible encourages us in the New Testament that we as one individual, one body in Christ, Jew, Gentile, male, we are one, the Bible says, the body of Christ. And how the Lord promises a, a rapture for us, a removal before the judgment of God comes down heavily upon the earth for the wickedness that's there. And, and, and here just this, this translating, this taking away, catching up, he just disappears. In the same way the Bible in 1 Thessalonians 4 speaks of how we'll be caught up to meet the Lord in the air and just removed. Now Enoch, an interesting guy, because the New Testament speaks of him in Jude. It tells us that he was a prophet that he was someone who spoke the word of God. And one other thing I might add, the name of his son, Methuselah. He names his son Methuselah. The name of Methuselah literally means, when he dies, it shall come. Inferring judgment. Now, he names his son as he has a spiritual awakening and he begins to walk with God and a prophetic gift. He names his son when he dies, it shall come. In some way, God supernaturally revealed to Enoch that when this boy dies, that's when my judgment is going to come. So he names his son prophetically. And his, uh, imagine what his kid's life must have been like. You know, that's his name. When he dies, it shall come. And from when he dies, judgment shall come. Here he is, you know, around every time he probably got a little bit of a sniffles or the cold. You know, hey, get some antibiotics. You know, get this, get this kid back out, because when he dies, that's it, you know. And, and probably the overprotectiveness, trying to do everything they can, because his name had a prophetic significance. God had communicated something that when he died, judgment would come. So all the days, it says, of Enoch, 365 years, he walked with God and he was not, for God took him away. Verse 25, and then Methuselah, that son with a special name, lived it says 187 years, and he then begot Lamech. And after Lamech, Methuselah lived 782 years, and he as well had sons and daughters. Verse 27, so all the days of Methuselah, with that significant name prophetically, all the days of Methuselah were 969 years, and then he died. Interesting. The one who had the longest life was guess who? Methuselah. God says, when he dies, it shall come. And that individual who God says, when he dies, then my judgment will come, God allows him to live longer than anyone else here recorded in this list. Why? Because God always is merciful and forestalls his judgment as long as he possibly can. And what a picture of the grace of God. Of all the names mentioned, Methuselah, Living almost a thousand years, God was delaying his judgment because God doesn't want to bring judgment. That's why Peter says, you know, that we need to realize that with the Lord, a day is a thousand years and a thousand years is like a day. And that God is, is, is not neglecting to fulfill his word, that he's long suffering towards us, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. And here you see that God forestalling judgment by letting Methuselah live almost a thousand years. Verse 28, Lamech lived 182 years, and he had a son and called his name, this is who we'll be following now, Noah, whose name literally means rest or comforter, saying of Noah, so Lamech realized something about his son as well, Noah, he said, regarding Noah, this one will comfort us concerning our work and toil of our hands because of the ground which the Lord has cursed. And after he begot Noah... 
Lamech lived 595 years, and he had sons and daughters. So all the days of Lamech were 777 years, and he died. And Noah was 500 years old, and Noah begot Shem, Ham, and Japheth, these three individuals who become the descendants of Noah that get off the ark with him. So we know every single one of us in this room and on this planet can all trace our family lineage back to one of those three individuals, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, because they were the three sons of Noah that ultimately got on board with him of that boat and stepped off after the judgment when God judged the world and cleansed it of all of humanity. Chapter 6, verse 1 says, Now it came to pass, when men began to multiply on the face of the earth, so there's a population explosion being described here, and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were beautiful. And they took wives for themselves of all whom they chose. And the Lord said, notice regarding this, God said, My spirit shall not strive with man with flesh forever. For he is indeed flesh, yet his days shall be 120 years. And I don't think referring there to the lifespan, because lifespans will get even shorter than that, but the idea God's indicating here that the span left of time before the judgment of God falls was about a hundred years, a little over that, and then God's judgment would be coming, again in connection with Methuselah's death. Remember the overlap. Verse 4 says, And there were giants on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bore children to them, and it says those were the mighty men who were of old men of renown. So we look at chapter 6, verse 1 to 4, and we go, what in the world <laughs> is that strange occurrence being described there? There's a population explosion happening. Verse 6 says that there were daughters being born, and it says in verse 2, excuse me, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men. They were attracted to them. They took them as wives God condemns what is taking on taking place here and it says at this time there were giants on the earth because the sons of God came into the daughters of men there was this intermingling the idea is some type of sexual relation happening and the result of that were these giant type individuals who were being born now very strange occurrence that's described here if you've ever looked at this passage before, you know typically, traditionally, there are basically two interpretations of what this is describing here. There are those who, because they struggle with what seems to be mentally, and I say mentally, the stranger idea, and because they can't wrap their mind around the stranger concept of the bizarrety of what could be described here, they try and go for a more logical, practical approach and say that what this refers to is the sons of God are basically the godly lineage or the godly line of Seth and the daughters of men are the ungodly lineage of Cain. And, and so you have this, the ungodly, unrighteous line mingling together with the righteous, godly line and these two coming together and being joined. Well, to me, that breaks down very, very fast. If, if you want to believe that, again, you're free to 
Come up with any crazy idea you want from the scriptures. Don't ever trust my opinion. You should study the word for yourself and come to your conclusions. And there are some who believe that this describes a mingling of a a righteous godly line with an unrighteous ungodly line. The Bible I read says there really is no righteous line because there's none righteous, no, not one. We all sin and fall. And, and the line of Seth gets destroyed off the earth in the same way. So lots of Seth's descendants die in the flood too. So it breaks down real quick. The other interpretation, the other possible interpretation, is what you have being described here, and, and I can't fully explain it myself, is you have some type of a perverse human and angelic intermingling that's taking place in a very bizarre, malevolent type activity that's going on that obviously was one of the things that contributed to God saying that the moral climate of the earth at this time has gone so low and has become so filthy and so perverse and so disgusting that God says, I need to cleanse the earth because of what was happening and bring about judgment. Interesting as it describes here the sons of God, obviously the daughters of men, refer to men of flesh, men of humanity, but the sons of God, the Hebrew there is, is bene Elohim. And when you follow that word, it shows up three other times in the Hebrew in the book of Job, where all three times it shows up in the book of Job, it is a direct reference to angelic spirits to supernatural beings, to angels. Uh, that being said, and following that scriptural principle of how the term is interpreted in other places, I personally, my own conviction, believe that what is being described here, though it's a very you know, difficult thing to grasp, is what you have is, is, is fallen angelic beings inhabiting the bodies of men somehow. We know that people can be possessed in scripture, I think what you have being described is fallen angelic beings utilizing the bodies of, of individuals in some malevolent attempt trying to pollute and destroy the messianic line of Jesus Christ, trying to hinder the Messiah from entering into humanity. And you have this distorted intermingling that takes place among them as these fallen angelic beings somehow use the bodies of men and enter into sexual relations with women and trying to distort and pollute the messianic line. Now, obviously, whatever it is, it's something that's completely disgusting in the sight of God. And in the New Testament, we have references like Second Peter 2 where it speaks of angels, it says, who sinned as a result, have now been delivered into Tartarus. The only place that term is used, and God says there are certain angels who have sinned and done certain things in violation where they're put to a place, it says they're delivered into chains of darkness reserved for judgment. The idea is that there are certain angels God's conveying in that passage that have done certain things that are so grievous that God has already confined them to a place of chained up judgment where they have no access to the earth anymore. Now, we know there are lots of other unclean spirits that are in operation in the world to this day, but there are certain angels, God says, that they have done something where they crossed a line where I have already put them in a place called Tartarus, reserved for judgment, and I don't allow them access to the earth anymore. Jude tells us this in Jude 6 and 7, it says, And the angels who did not keep their proper domain, but left their own abode, God has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. 
as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, and similar to these, have given themselves over to sexual immorality and gone after strange flesh. So there's this reference in Jude to, it says, angels who did not keep their proper domain. That is, they went outside of their proper boundaries, did something very distorted and something very malevolent. And I think that is what's being described here. And of course, this genetic offspring being produced that is being described here of of what took place. Well, verse 5 tells us, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness, it says, of man was great in the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Look at that description of the earth at that time. It says that the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth. Let's remember something. As these are things that precipitate God bringing his judgment, do you see how God measures time? God measures time morally. That's how God measures time. God doesn't measure time the same way that we do. God measures time on the earth morally. Again, as we go through these things, remember Jesus said, as it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be in the coming of the Son of Man. And as we see these parallels, they're great reminders for us of how God is again measuring time morally. And as Jesus says, the characteristics of the conditions of the world in the days of Noah will be the same characteristics to identify the return of Jesus Christ that will precipitate God's judgment when the Lord returns. Interesting, verse 5, the first time that we have the mention of the word heart in the Bible, it's not a good description. (laughs) The first time the word heart shows up in the Bible, look how it's described. God saw that every intent of the thoughts of man's heart was only evil continually. When God looked at the heart of humanity, the first time God describes a human heart, he says it's completely depraved. It's completely sick and distorted and depraved and perverse. And God says the only intent of the thoughts of the human heart is evil continually. It's our natural bent, our natural inclination to think and to pursue that which is evil. Jeremiah later says in chapter 17, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. And he says, who can know it? Let's remember that when people say, oh, just trust your heart. Go with your heart. Just go with where your heart's leading you. That's a pretty dangerous thing to do. The Bible says our heart by nature, that every intent of it is to pursue evil continually. Verse 6, and the Lord was sorry. The idea there in the Hebrew literally indicates a sigh, like a sigh of grief, you know, just a, 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 a sadness, a distraught sense. The Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth and he was grieved in his heart. That word grieve is a term of emotion. Now, a person can't be grieved unless they love somebody. You know, people don't grieve over the loss of a loved one, or people don't grieve over a situation unless they have tremendous love. You grieve for somebody because you love them tremendously. So when it says that God saw men's wickedness and depravity and the wickedness on the earth and the Lord was sorry, and it says that he was grieved in his heart. Listen, we have to remember that because we, th- we have this tendency to almost think th- that God is this uh, you know, sort of stoic, emotionless, he's just going to you know, fire and brimstone bring judgment on the earth. Is God going to bring heavy judgment? Yeah. But when God brought judgment, he brought it with an extremely heavy heart. 
a heart that was broken. Not an angry police officer who could care less about those that he was judging. This is a God who loved his creation and who is heartbroken like a father who's heartbroken who watches their children ruining their lives and grieves over it. It says God was grieved in his heart. When we sin, let's not just have the idea that when we sin it just offends God. Does it to in a sense? Yes, God's a righteous God and our sin is an offense to God. But remember that when you sin, it also grieves God's heart. It breaks God. You're not just offending God with your sin. You're crushing his heart. You're breaking his heart. You're causing sadness and pain in the heart of God. Ephesians 4 tells us not to grieve the Holy Spirit. And it's the term there used for the remorse that's shown at the death of a loved one. That's the pain that God feels when he sees the wages of sin operating in our lives and among our society. He's grieved. Verse 7, so the Lord, out of that grieving over sin, in that sadness, the Lord said, I will destroy man. That's the basis. I will destroy man whom I've created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, creeping thing and birds of the air, for I am sorry that I have made them. Verse 8, but Noah, it says, found grace in the eyes of the Lord. One man stood out in the midst of this wicked society. Again, one man who it's going to tell us in verse 9 that Noah was a just man. He was perfect, that he is blameless. He had not incurred guilt and entered into the things that others were doing in his generations. And Noah, like Enoch, he had probably learned through that godly heritage who would have been of his sort of his, his uh, great-grandfather. Noah walked with God and begot his three sons, as we read earlier, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. So Noah, in the midst of all that ungodliness, right before the judgment of God falls, it says that Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Again, the first time the word grace shows up in the Bible. And I love the setting again. I love the way the Holy Spirit says regarding grace that Noah found grace. When you find something, what does it mean? It's a discovery. When you dis Noah discovered grace in the eyes of the Lord. And you know what? Can I tell you something? There is no greater discovery that you or anybody on the earth can make than the grace of God. Noah, when he looked in the eyes of God, he didn't see an angry God of judgment. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. When he looked into the eyes of God, he realized God is so gracious. Oh, he's so gracious. He's so kind and he's so loving. And I'll tell you, if there is anything that will revolutionize your life and will compel you to walk with God more faithfully than ever before, it's finding the grace of God. Not trying to legislate more rules and live legalistically, spiritually. Or Love and the grace of God is the highest motivator to live for the Lord in a greater way. You know, oh, you got to be careful. You know, tell people too much about grace. I mean, you got to keep people aware of the judgment of God. You got to let people know about God's judgment and God's wrath and the fear of God. That'll purge sin out of people's lives. Well, the Bible says in Romans that it's the goodness and kindness of God that leads men to repentance. And when you discover the grace of God, that undeservedly God loves you and He blesses your life, even when you are at your absolute worst, it's a tremendous motivator greater than anything else to want to serve God. And Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord 
And Noah, it says, abstained from everything everyone else was doing. And Noah walked with God and had those three sons. And the earth, verse 11, was corrupt before God. And the earth was filled with violence. So again, the conditions, you know, the, the, the violent, evil society. Verse 12, so God looked upon the earth and indeed it was corrupt for all flesh had corrupted its way on the earth. Boy, that's a description. But again, look at the culture we're living in. It's beginning to sound very similar and it's parallel. When God looks upon the earth now, I wonder what he sees. When he looks at humanity, he looks at the things that our people are doing and what we're permitting and, and what we're endorsing and what we're promoting and the ways in which we're living on this earth. I wonder if it might be said of our present generation that God would look upon the earth and see it as corrupt and that flesh has corrupted their way. Boy, I see a lot of indications that as flesh, human beings, we are corrupting our ways that we're corrupting the ways of our morals and the things that we claim is right or wrong. Verse 13, so God speaks to Noah and says to Noah, Noah, the end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled, it says, with violence through them. And behold, I will destroy them with the earth. So God tells Noah that his judgment is coming. And then he begins to give him instructions. Verse 14 Noah, he says, make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and outside with pitch. And this is how you shall make it. The length of the ark shall be 300 cubits. It's width 50 cubits and its height 30 cubits, he says. And you shall make a window for the ark and finish it to a cubit from above and set the door of the ark in its side and you shall make it with a lower second and third decks. And I myself am bringing the floodwaters on the earth to destroy from under heaven all flesh in which is the breath of life. Everything that is in the earth shall die, but I will establish my covenant with you and you shall go into the ark, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. So God tells Noah that he's about to bring judgment. And he says, Noah, the way I'm going to do that, he tells him, is I'm going to bring floodwaters on the earth. Remember, it's going to rain for 40 days and 40 nights straight, and it had never rained before. And it says the waters from underneath were going to break open, and there would be a complete worldwide universal flood. And God tells Noah that he's about to bring judgment, but what does God do? We see God here giving Noah a way of escape before the judgment comes. Again, God says, I'm going to bring judgment. It's inevitable. It must happen. It will come. But Noah, I'm giving you a way, only one way, but I'm giving you a way to escape judgment. I want you to, and there was one way. It was the ark. And the ark had, guess what? One door. And in the same way, God's going to bring judgment. And there is one way of salvation. And there's only one door to enter that salvation. It's through Jesus Christ himself who preserves us and delivers us from the wrath of God to come. So he tells Noah to build this ark because this waters were going to come upon the earth. And he tells Noah to make an ark, verse 14, of gopher wood to make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and outside with pitch. So 
make this ark of gopher wood, cypress something that refers to, a wood that would be uh, impervious so that it wouldn't rot. And he tells them to make rooms, verse 14, and then cover the ark inside and outside with, it says, pitch or tar. Yeah, there's a tar-like substance. Now, here's what's interesting. You think, well, what's the purpose of that? I mean, I see covering the outside of it with pitch, but, but why cover the inside? I mean, you get worry about walking around and you know, getting sticky, muddy, tarry feet or whatever. Well, when you look at the word pitch there, in the Hebrew, it's the term kofar, which is the Hebrew term translated in many other places and throughout the Old Testament as the word atonement. And to me, now this starts to make sense. Again, in all these things, what's God doing? He's foreshadowing the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And God says, cover it inside and outside. Outside, inside, cover it with the atonement. The one way in which salvation will come, he says, cover it inside and outside with pitch. And this is the size, Noah was told to make this ark, 300 cubits by 50 cubits wide by 30 cubits high. Now, Basically, a cubit, if it's the standard cubit that they used in that day, and there's debate over this, typically the standard cubit was 18 inches or a foot and a half. So the math becomes pretty obvious. Basically, this arc that Noah was to make was, in essence, to be 450 foot long. It was to be 75 foot wide and 45 foot high. And, and it wasn't shaped like a typical boat. You know, look at the idea in your mind, like a boat. This is basically like a, a rectangle, like a big rectangle, bigger than the size of a football field and like a barge, like a big floating rectangle. It wasn't made to navigate the waters. It was made to do one thing, to float, <laughs> to just float when the flood came and to keep everybody preserved. So quite a massive structure that Noah is commanded to build, and it says it was to have a window, verse 16, for the ark, and that could have been one window, or maybe a window along the whole upper deck, and if you remember what ends up on the ark with him for almost upwards to a year, all those animals, you'd want a little ventilation. So he says, make sure there's a window to allow for ventilation, and notice also there was a door, as we said, just one door to enter in, and you shall make it with three decks, a lower, second, and third decks. And God says to him, prepare this boat and, and get it ready. You know, again, this massive structure, you know, people have uh, kind of calculated out the, the size of this boat here. Uh, and when you calculate the square footage inside of this barge-like boat, uh, it's estimated that you could fit 522 boxcars, you know, boxcars where you want to train or whatever, 522 boxcars inside of that boat. That's massive. And here's Noah building this thing in preparation and in faith, God telling him to do that, because God says in verse 18, Noah, I'm going to establish my covenant with you. You and your family will go in, but every living thing of all flesh you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you, and they shall be male and female, so that, the again, the animal races could continue to reproduce, male and female, of the birds after their kind, and the animals after their kind, and of every creeping thing of the earth and after its kind, two of every kind will come to you to keep them alive, and you shall take for yourself of all food that's eaten, 
and gather it to yourself, and it shall be food for you and for them. So prepare food for yourself. Verse 22, it says, And Noah did according to all that God commanded him, so he did. Now, our time is about to elude us, and we'll pick up with that last verse there next week as we move into chapter 7 and 8, that Noah obeys the exact commands that God gives to him. However, one thing I want to draw your attention to before we close that's extremely insightful to me, verse 20, God tells him to bring two of every kind of animals, and it says in verse 20, take notice, it says two of every kind, and it says will come to you to keep them alive. Noah is to gather two of every type of species, male and female, and God says they will come to you. That's interesting. So somehow God conveys something to his creatures, to the creation, at the right time, because chapter 7, verse 1 says God's going to say, okay, time to come into the ark now, Noah. This is the day. It's all built now. And at the right time, God tells, tells us, Mr. Squirrel, Mrs. Squirrel, you too. You're going to make it. Sorry for all the rest of you. I want you to go over there and go over to that guy and get into that boat. Amazing. Animals, responsive to the voice of God, and yet human beings ignore God, disregard God, don't listen to God. And how God sovereignly, I love this, Noah's doing his part, he's building the boat, he's going through the practical efforts, he's sharing with people around him, Again, we'll talk about this more next week, God tells him, verse 21, Noah, you get food together, there's a part for you in this too, I want you to gather food, make preparations, do practical things. But then God says, but there are certain things, Noah, that I'm just going to do sovereignly. I'm going to make the animals come to you. You know, Noah wasn't out there trying to, you know, set squirrel traps and lasso in the giraffes. And God says, Noah, you do your part practically, and I'll do my part supernaturally and sovereignly. And I'll make all those animals come to you. And I love it because, you know what, when God asks us to do something, whatever it is, there is an element where there's practical responsibility where we should, like Noah, do what we're commanded and do the things that God asks us to do. But the wonderful thing is when God's in something and God's doing something, you don't have to go get things. God will bring things to you. God, God will bring to you and make happen what needs to happen, the things that are outside of your control. And you know what our job is? To walk in faith, to trust God to do what only God can do, and to simple obedience, do the part that God asks of us. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all of these things, Jesus said, they'll be added unto you. What an amazing thing to consider. Let's stand. It's, it's 8.30. Let me just close in prayer. We'll pick up there next week. Read ahead. We'll finish off that story. Father, thank you for your word and the lessons it teaches to us that we can learn from it and let it speak into our lives and Lord, you know where each one of us is at tonight. Help us, we pray, as we walk out our journey. And in a dark world, Lord, much like the days of Noah, help us to be men and women of God who walk by faith, who aren't ashamed to live for you in this culture, and who are willing to fulfill the calling of God that you've given to us in our life, in our little personal sphere, that we'd be faithful there in that place and trust you to do the rest, Lord. And we commit these things in this night ahead to you in Jesus' name. Amen.